This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Before we get to today's interview, I want to tell you about an article that I spent all day yesterday writing, and it was triggered by a morning peruse of my Facebook feed, and a friend of mine, a doctor, posted a really funny picture of a mug that said, please do not confuse your Google search with my medical degree. So that got me thinking, is your doctor's medical degree really better than your Google search? And the answer, of course, is it depends. So first I look at medical education and where doctors get their information and the strengths and weaknesses of that information. Then I did a Google search for diabetes and followed the links to see where that leads us in terms of good information, useful information, truthful information. And I concluded that neither your doctor's medical degree nor your Google search are going to get you anywhere. So the most important part of the article is then the third part, in which I show you screenshot by screenshot how to do your own research, not using Google, not just listening to your doctor, but other sites, other tools, and other skills you need if you're going to be an informed consumer of healthcare. Again, that's at trianglebewell.com and click on the Be Well blog link up at the top. Now, on to today's guest, registered dietitian Anthony Disson. I met Anthony through correspondence over the book Proteinaholic. Uh, when people sign up for the Proteinaholic bonuses, I get their email address and I like to contact people and find out what they thought of the book, why they bought it. Uh, stuff like that. So Anthony and I got into a conversation and turns out that while he has the science of plant-based eating down cold, he also is an experienced practitioner and theorist of implementation, of getting groups of people to change the way they eat. Now that's really the holy grail. We know the nutritional science. We know the best practice diet for pretty much everything. The hard part is helping people to make that transition, to go through the initial phases of resistance and reluctance and overwhelm, to stick with it, to get enough information that they believe that it's worthwhile without overwhelming them with science. And Anthony Disson does this for a living. And in our conversation, we'll talk about some of those efforts in the workplace that Anthony is leading. So without further ado, Anthony Disson, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really an honor. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about a uh, an intervention at the workplace, teaching people how to eat better, how to eat plant-based meals, and we've got some interesting statistics to talk about. But first, let's uh, introduce you. So tell us, uh, okay. first of all, what, what, what you do and uh, why you do it. Sure. So um, I am a registered dietitian. And I uh, actually work at three different uh, places right now. I work at Center State Medical Center, which is a uh, hospital in Freehold, New Jersey, where I'm a dietitian and a health educator. And then in the academic setting, um, I am an adjunct uh, faculty member at Stockton University and Georgian Court University, where I teach classes on basic and therapeutic nutrition, as well as some classes on more integrative health, things like mindfulness, meditation, um, looking for students uh, who are mostly health science majors that are looking to learn more about nutrition as well as some more mind-body approaches to health and wellness. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I was, I was looking over your resume, and I was interested that you, you come from certainly it's like a, a non-Western background in terms of, uh, you know, sort of qigong and energy. And, and I'm curious how, you, um, how you've navigated the, I want to I I say, an approach to evidence. Because there's things that you're, you've been interested in that, that Western science doesn't really understand and hasn't spent a lot of time looking at. And then there's things like nutrition where we, we can have very, very, very clear outcome measures. Do, do you know what I'm asking about sort of no, know you know, exactly in, intuition yeah. versus, versus objective proof? Yes. Um, it's interesting because I kind of came to nutrition and dietetics through the corridor, through the avenue of kind of integrative or what we might call holistic health, um, where it was actually through things like yoga, through things like uh, you know, Eastern medicine, 
um, where I really became very passionately interested in a lot of the roles that food and nutrition and diet played. And one thing that a lot of these modalities of these schools of thought and practice share in common is uh, not only the importance of food, but looking at a very plant-based, plant-rich approach to food, whether it's through a trying to look at the food as its nutritional value in terms of how it's going to affect the body or things like in yogic psychology or Buddhist psychology, looking at food as an act of violence if it's not being prepared or raised or uh, produced in an ethical way. And so I really came through the two at the same time. And then by the time I went into college for my undergraduate studies, um, I knew very strongly that I wanted to study dietetics because it's always been the nutrition aspect that has fascinated me the most. But my feelings and my and my approach to it have always been through the lens of this this greater, maybe more um, what's the word a, a, a much more integrated approach to well uh, health and wellness versus just kind of the caloric microscopic aspects of food and really looking at, well, what is the overall effect of this food? Or if we're looking at something like trying to help people achieve better behaviors, often knowledge just, just wrote scientific information, data, that doesn't really inspire a lot of change in people. But if you can give them practices or tools that make them feel empowered or that give them an emotional connection or an emotional shift, that often seems to lead to the greatest and most permanent and sustainable changes in their health habits. Mm. So do you, do you think you came to your study of dietetics with a viewpoint, with a set of opinions that you were looking to reinforce? Because a lot, you know, because you're, you're, you're not a normal dietitian. <laughs> Right. You, you, and without without sort of slamming the industry, there's there's there are not you know uh, Colin Campbell calls vegetarianism um, the Amer the Dietetic Association's redheaded stepchild you know sort of tolerated mm -hmm. but we'd rather keep him in the basement than have him come out and talk to the guests. So what 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 led you to uh, to adopt what I think is an evidence based approach, but is somewhat different from the the standard practice. Sure. Um, well, what's interesting about that is through the years, I've actually met many dietitians who share a very similar, at least a, a, a parallel approach to, to nutrition and wellness that I do, but they do, they keep themselves very uh, in the dark or they feel as though that uh, their, um, their, their viewpoints or their practice isn't going to be accepted by the larger community, which I find interesting because I think there's many more of us out there than anyone realizes. Um, it's just trying to create a shift in, in this profession, in this professional field to um, not feel as though if a dietitian or other healthcare provider has this sort of integrative approach or more plant-based approach, they have to kind of keep it to themselves. Um, but to answer your question, my, when I was going through my undergraduate training and even through my dietetic internship and, and since in my work, I actually think that the idea that evidence-based uh, approach to wellness and that, that as a healthcare provider you're meant to use evidence-based practice is incredibly important. But the problem is most people are receiving evidence that is many years, if not decades, out of date. Um, I recently came across a, a statistic or, or a thought that on average most of what is taught in dietetic programs and other health professional programs is somewhere between 10 to 15 years out of date. Hmm. And so with what's being taught, and I can certainly remember this very strongly, uh, with my own undergraduate training is that a lot of the nutrition and wellness uh, academic information is, is still heavily, heavily based on maybe what had been taught 10, 15, 20 years ago. And if you look at current evidence, there's a tremendous amount of evidence, as, as you and I both know, not only for the plant-based nutrition, but evidence about things like mindfulness, about the importance of empowerment to move people through their stages of change, um, that creating permanent lasting change is not just giving people a lot of, of info or data, but really making them 
have a much broader worldview or helping them to have a more emotional, uh, visceral connection to their health and their food habits. So there's actually quite a lot of evidence out there. Um, And you see, uh, you know, experts like Dean Ornish doing this all the time where they're bringing this lifestyle medicine approach to their work. Um, And so I think it's sort of uh, false that we think that a lot of these integrative or to use another term, holistic approaches are sort of beyond evidence. When there's actually quite a lot of evidence out there, it's just yet to be integrated into the academic training programs, I think, that a lot of healthcare professionals go through. Right. And, and I'm, you know, I, I've been to a lot of sort of, you know, integrative functional medicine people, chiropractors, massage therapists, people who, whom, you know, in my era, we called sort of alternative or complementary mm-hmm. or, you know, looking for words for them that, that was somehow outside of the mainstream, but not disempowering. And I've got to say, as I look back, there was very little interest in evidence among most of these people that, you know, they had yeah. their they had their shtick. Uh, whether it was supplements or, you know, ear candling or um, iridology that may or may not work, but they, re- they really didn't care very much. And I'm wondering what you, you know, what your experience is around, mo- the, you know, the modern sort of outside of Western medicine model. Are people becoming more interested in outcomes? I think so. I think people who have gone through um, good quality training absolutely are interested in outcomes and evidence because they want to know that what they're providing for people is helpful. And I I 100% agree because in my experiences and even to this day right now, there are, I think, the majority of people who call themselves um, these, these holistic or integrative health practitioners aren't interested in evidence and outcome, and they do sort of have just their axe to grind. But I think a, a, an issue with this is that they just there's a great variety of quality of training, and there are programs that give people deep, true passion and respect for their field of study. And then there are fields or, or approaches out there that you know you take a four-hour web course and then you're a certified something or other. And so, <laughs> as consumers or as people looking for this type of approach to our wellness, I think just like you would want to make sure that if you were finding a physician or a more allopathic medical provider, that you'd want to make sure that they have a good reputation and that they have a good sense of respect for their field. Same thing, just because somebody calls themselves a healthcare provider, a nutritionist, or a a life coach, or whatever the terminology may be, there's a great uh, spectrum in quality of education and quality of practice. But I have to say, even in, in fellow dietitians, I often see not enough interest in really looking for correct evidence and outcome measures. They, they say what they were told to say in school. They say what they were told to say in their dietetic internship. They haven't really kept up to date, and they go through their careers just giving the same information. So um, I, I think within any field of healthcare, any field of study, what I think sets people apart from being high-quality practitioners to those who, unfortunately, aren't so high-quality, is a passion for wanting to stay up-to-date and really know that what they're saying is true. Um, I've been to chiropractors probably for the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years of my life, and I've had amazing chiropractors, and I've had chiropractors who didn't seem to really have a great understanding of the human body. So I think it's just a matter of finding someone who really has that drive to stay up to date. Um, But even with people who are doing studies on things like meditation or what Larry Dosey would call non-local medicine, there's a lot of serious study being done now and a lot of serious look at outcome measures. I think it's just, unfortunately, there's a lot of chaos and noise out there and you have to kind of skin through the, the shouting to find the people who are really doing something high quality. Right. And another issue, of course, is the minute you address certain issues, you're marginalized as a researcher or a practitioner. So there's certain there's certain topics. If you touch them, all of a sudden you're a quack, you're a crackpot. Uh, You know, so Larry Dossi's work certainly comes to mind that if anyone is asking about, you know, non-local healing, meaning, let's say, a bunch of people being prayed for. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's not considered serious. And regardless of the the outcome you get, no one's going to look at it and be convinced because there's, you know, there's sort of a scient- scientism fundamentalism that says oh, you know, this true. this is what we study and that is what we don't study. And if you if you go over yes. to that, it doesn't matter what evidence you get. Exactly, and that's where we need to, I think, really work not just on doing the study and doing the work, but we need, I think, just as much, if not more, attention on how do we shift our our culture and our paradigm, at least within healthcare, to take these things seriously. Um, Because, as you just said, you know, people might be doing excellent work and getting some fascinating results, but if the popular opinion within that field is that that is sort of fringe or ridiculous or not real, then it's going to be silenced. And so more and more healthcare practitioners or scientists and researchers who are interested in this, I think not only need to kind of come out and and say that, yes, I'm a professional and I take my profession quite seriously, and I think there's something here that should be seriously looked at, um, but then also to try to work with their colleagues and their professional field and their communities to dispel some of these concerns and move us forward in not discounting anything. I think what's so interesting about, if you look back at the history of science and the history of medicine, is you know, people were allowed to kind of question anything and look at absolutely anything. And in retrospect, we can look back at some of these early experiments and sort of say, oh, how silly, but nobody was telling them it was silly. They were saying, yes, see what you can find out, you know, see what can be discovered. And there was a real open door policy of let's, let's learn about the universe and let's learn about our place within it and about our, our status as this species. And I think if, if we can try to very kindly work with our professions and our, our colleagues to tell them that this isn't ridiculous that there's at least a lot of anecdotal evidence here. Something has to be going on. Let's see if we can try to figure out what it might be. Right. I'm, I'm thinking about like the great scientists in history. And one of the questions you'd want to ask to determine who, you know, who is a great scientist is like, what was their day job? <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, most like, I, you know, Einstein was working what, at a patent office. Uh, Darwin had, had a, a, a different career that, that most of the great scientific advances throughout history have not been made by professional scientists in, pay, in labs with staff and, and research assistants and grants. It was made by passionate, curious amateurs. By, and, and by amateur, I mean someone who just loves the topic. Yes, and so it's sort of we we have a hierarchy in our world of who we consider to have a more um, uh, valid voice or a more important voice to listen to, and then we we assume that what they say is worth listening to based on their position in that hierarchy. And so I do think there's a bit of an elitism going on where we really do need to – it's a cultural shift as much as it is an intelligence-related shift that needs to happen because – there are probably people over this entire planet doing amazing work whose findings will never be looked at or discussed or known because they're not considered to be, you know, quote unquote, uh, appropriate to be able to do so. Right. And I think one of the most important things, you know, so we're, we're talking about sort of systemic changes at the professional level, but for people who are just going to be, you know, clients or patients or consumers of health information. I think a really important distinction that we need to shift is from sort of Western medicine is is like science, and then everything else is to some degree quackery. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that's a, that's such an unhelpful. Um, division, because especially when you when you look back at the history of the American Medical Association, it's it's basically you know whoever can monetize the problem the best is the one that gets to call themselves mainstream and marginalize everybody else. And I, I would love for us to start to think about the the distinction between people who respect evidence and people who don't. There's there's you know cu- oh, yeah. cu- curiosity versus arrogance. And I mean, and looking at something like plant-based nutrition, you know, it, it's amazing to me because I find that the evidence is at, at such an overwhelming mass that there's just such a preponderance of evidence that it's almost 
I believe, impossible to not realize just how valid this this you know argument is. Um, but so many people aren't interested in evidence; they're interested in and whatever uh, point of view they have to uphold or whatever kind of standard of practice they feel like they have to have. And if they have a certain combination of letters after their name, it's sort of just taken well they know best, as opposed to there are many people doing great work who don't have, you know, the the background that we kind of uh, put up as the ideal, and they might have amazing evidence or a great personal understanding and passion for science and for uh, public health and for information, uh, but they get drowned out. Hmm. Well, and earlier you mentioned, you know, one one of the areas in which we're we're making great progress is understanding how people change and how to support them and guide them in change rather than just hitting them over the head with information. And I think one of the groups we can really learn from in that regard is the paleo movement, which which is really good at telling an emotional story that a lot of people want to hear and resonate with. I wonder what, what, what your thoughts are about that. And that's what I think is so brilliant about things like paleo movement or some other, um, you know, uh, wellness philosophies out there, if you will. Um, they they understand how to connect with people. That, uh, and I'll just say from my own just profession, that dietitians rarely possess. Um, we we are given a lot of training in science and biology and all these things, and that is, of course, crucial, but just as crucial is how do you connect with a human being? How do you work with someone uh, and talk to them and get them to trust you and, and to connect them on an emotional level where there are paleo uh, advocates out there who don't have any training in medicine, nutrition, anthropology, and science for the most part, and they attract thousands and thousands and thousands of followers because they're very charismatic and they're passionate and they know how to sell a story. And I think often then the rest of the world kind of just says, oh, well, they're just a bunch of snake oil salesmen. And, you know, you can call them names all you want, but they're getting their books sold and they're getting people to follow these plans that are you know, potentially quite dangerous. But they're doing it because they know how to talk to somebody. And I desperately wish, if nothing else, that people who are kind of training in, in sort of what we might call Western medical practices, whether that's physicians, nurses, dietitians, anything where you're working with somebody's health habits, there needs to be a lot more time and attention paid in their academic and professional training to how do you talk to somebody? How do you connect to somebody? I've had professors in my career that are amazing at that and others who give talks in front of groups of, of people or students, and it's like they're giving a, a thesis defense, and it's just dry numbers and data that nobody in that room is going to feel a connection to at all, and it's just a, it's a wasted opportunity to, to work with somebody and to educate somebody. Um, so I think there's actually quite a lot we can take from you know, the paleo movement just being the most popular one right now, or any of these sort of pseudo-dietary programs that come and go and go through their cyclical histories. But they, they've got a real corner on selling passion and emotion um, that I think should not be ignored. So let's let's shift um, to talk about the programs that you've uh, you've run um, in, corp- in corporate America. So before sure. before you uh, you know you and I I'm sure agree to a very great extent on what the science of nutrition is on what people should be eating. Um, yeah. But but when you think about putting together a program for a bunch of people who are not vegans, who may not have any prior exposure to anything other than sort of the, the Western mainstream media views on food and nutrition and health, what do you think about in terms of creating something that will be impactful and will, will get results? I would say what I try to keep in mind whether I'm putting together a nutrition-related program or some other kind of health-related program, whether it's for employees of the hospital or community members that we may be working with, is 
um, I, I really try to keep this central kind of mantra going of empowerment that I, I'm a very more and more, it seems every day, more and more drawn to how do we empower people? Because what will seem to determine whether they take this information and do it for a few days versus a few weeks versus the rest of their lifetime is, uh, again, kind of echoing back to what we were talking about before is, you know, do they feel an emotional, personal connection to this information? So I, with this most recent um, program that we did for, for some of our employees at the hospital, Yes, we had lots of, of, of science and lots of data and lots of information, but we spent at least half, if not more than half, of each of our weekly uh, meetings together just talking and sharing stories, whether it was a great success that happened or a bit of a setback or a brand new recipe somebody tried or a restaurant somebody discovered because that, I feel, is what not only will keep them coming back to these classes or these workshops or these programs, but but they can leave that evening's program or workshop or seminar feeling really lifted up by it. If I'm giving a talk on nutrition for heart health and I'm basically saying you have to eat this particular diet or it's going to wreck your endothelial cells and you're going to be sick and you're not going to heal, as true as that may be from a scientific point of view, nobody's probably going to leave quite inspired by that where if somebody leaves and isn't necessarily 100% sold on completely abandoning processed oils or artificial uh, products or, or animal foods from their diet, but they feel very excited about it, maybe they start dipping their toe in the water and slowly moving through that spectrum of change. And that is the thing I would say that I keep, I try to keep in mind the most is I want every single person to come to feel like, that this was something that was enjoyable, something that really impacted them in a positive way versus sort of that scare health belief model of here's all the scary science out there that's showing why the food you eat is bad for you. Very few people, I think, hear that and permanently change and are happy about it. I think most people hear that, maybe make a very short kind of panic change that quickly goes away. So is there a, a link between that kind of emotional, personal connection, people sharing stories with each other, and empowerment? I truly believe there is. Um, prior to my work uh, at, at Center State, I was part of a program that Whole Foods Market had put together called the Wellness Club, which I'm not sure if you've ever heard of before. Yep. Um, it was a program that was... Uh, piloted at five different Whole Foods throughout the country where it was plant-based nutrition education, but it was at a uh, little, like we had a small uh, classroom and demo kitchen actually built inside of the store. And so people would come, and there was a monthly membership, sort of like a fitness center or something like that, but you had unlimited access to all these cooking classes, nutrition classes, fitness classes, all this um, wellness information provided. But the people, and we were, we, the pilot lasted for approximately two, two and a half years or so. But the people over my time there who had the greatest success and who continue to have success are the ones who would come to our weekly check-ins, are the ones who actually formed their own like little social clubs within the wellness club itself. We had this one group. Um, of participants who we would have a check-in, kind of a, a progress meeting every Monday morning, well, they created their own walking club where prior to the meeting, they would do their own, on their own walking club, and then all come in together for the meeting. And so beyond just here's a bunch of recipes or here are PowerPoint slides about why you don't require dairy in your diet, and all of that's so important, but the ones who were with us the longest, the ones who had changes in their blood sugar, uh, reversal of their diabetic neuropathy, weight loss, cholesterol loss, all these various biomarkers that are so praised. They were the ones they shared with each other. They brought in food for each other. They created social groups with each other. They participated in the community building aspect of it, which is the thing that I believe was the most successful 
key component of what made that program so wonderful was that it wasn't just a series of classes. It was a, a physical place for people to come and build a community with each other. And the ones that really entered into that community were the ones that had the most powerful shift in their health. Mm. So how, how much of that do you think was just about autonomy that people who, who you know, kind of owned the change and they were the ones taking responsibility for it? And how much of that was just the social support? Can you tease, tease them apart? Or It's interesting that the, the thing that people did to take control was to become social about it. Yeah, I, that's a, it's an excellent question. I don't know how much I could determine how many of them, you know, were just the type of personality type where they knew they were going to do it and therefore they did it, and how many of them did it because they were part of a group. Um, what I can say is some of our most successful members, or those ones that really took to it the most, have since the club uh, has closed, have now created their own uh, social groups. Uh, some of them are online through things like online forums or uh, through social media. Some of them have created like community potlucks in their area or created little groups. And so um, we still see this kind of continual uh, wave or this continual thread of creating these little pocket communities of getting people to come, share food, share stories, uh, and just talk about their health and talk about their goals in their life and, and how they can support each other for it. So um, I'm sure some of these people who have really continued it, I would guess, have a strong kind of leadership seed in their brain, whether they realize it or not. But while their continual success maybe doesn't hinge upon continuing this community aspect, they've still created these new communities. And so I think we can't deny that you know, we are social creatures and that our health and our happiness and our and our uh, sense of satisfaction are highly um, magnified when, when we are able to share it with a larger group of people. Right. Well, and I know for myself that the times in my life when I have been a public figure around an ideology or a a practice. It's been much easier to maintain the practice and to continually to believe in the ideology when when I'm I'm around there sort of representing it and teaching it to others. I think when when we look at leaders of a movement and we say, well, what what makes them successful in incorporating this in their own lives? I think we have to look at the the fact that they are leading others. Oh, absolutely. I, it's it's hard to be the lone bearer of the torch. You know, as much as you may believe in or, or feel passionate about some aspect of your life, if you're the lone person cooking the kale or you're the lone person meditating or the lone person exercising, it's just probably not going to last long, or at least not last in a way that's very enjoyable. But when you're either the one sharing the message or you're part of a group of people receiving the message, it just it makes it a more, I think, uh, indelible part of our identities. And it's something that we want to keep going and not see uh, burn out or go by the wayside. Right. So let's, let's talk specifically about the, um, the information you sent me via email about a program that you did. I think it was a tw 12 sessions, um, basically, yeah. you know, get, get plant powered. Uh, so start by telling us, like, who, who's the audience? Who, who's in the group that you're hoping to help? So for this program that a co-worker, a colleague of mine put together, um, we were very much inspired to really try to bring plant-based nutrition to our employee population at the hospital. Um, and we went through a couple early permutations about whether there was a specific population group we were looking for, but in the end we decided, at least for this first one, any employee who is interested in plant-based nutrition, regardless of whether they even had health goals in mind or not, was invited to participate. And we were praying that we would get at least five people to sign up, and we got 11. So we were very happy, an admittedly small group, but for this first pilot about you know, plant-based nutrition that didn't even have like a specific uh, health condition focus or disease state focus, 
So we had a, this was our first pilot offering of this. It actually just concluded October 26th. So we just ended our uh, 12 weeks of this. And we had nine employees participate, uh, two of whom um, brought their significant other or spouse with them. So uh, we had 11 total participants. And we were really opening the doors to any employee who may be interested. This was offered through our, our human resources and, and um, uh, employee wellness aspect of, of the hospital to just help them feel better. And some of them had specific health conditions in mind, whether it was something like diabetes management, uh, whether it was something like cholesterol management or just a desire to help with weight management. Some never really shared a specific health goal. They were just either curious or personally interested. And so we wanted everybody to feel welcome and that this wasn't just for people with diabetes or this wasn't just for people who were trying to lose weight. And part of the reason for that being is we didn't want uh, people to think, well, you only go on a plant-based diet when things are going wrong and you've got something to fix. We wanted to present it as this is something that we believe no matter what your personal health and wellness goals may be, um, you will feel benefited by, by changing your diet and your lifestyle in this way. And so that was sort of the um, guidance that we were using as we put our classes together, um, advertised it in our information sessions, and then eventually uh, carry out the program itself. Huh. That's, that's really interesting because, you know, everything I've learned about marketing is that you want to hit people's pain points. Like you want to find the, find their wound and pick the scab off so that if you really want to get people interested, you explain, you, you, you reach out to the people who have a, a problem, who know they have a problem. And so, you know, had you done that, if you talked about diabetes or heart disease, you might have gotten more people. But at, the, but at the same time, you're saying that inducing them in a disease mentality actually keeps the message from spreading to people who, who don't have that, uh, that immediate urgency or concern. Yes, and I think in future offerings, if, if uh, this continues to move as successfully, as at least as it initially has, we would like to then sort of have um, offshoots where it's specifically for bone and joint health, diabetes health, cardiac health, something like that. We would definitely, that is not out of the question, um, Part of, I would say, the reason why we kept things a bit broad in the beginning is we also had the very real um, concern, I suppose, or the desire to make sure we weren't stepping on anybody's toes, so to speak, as we are in a hospital setting. And so if we, I think, marketed a program or a workshop that was saying for, for a particular disease state, the thought was also, well, we... We're concerned that we might start to get either departments or, or doctors or members of a healthcare team that work with that disease state, they might start to get a bit perturbed. Hmm. So by keeping it uh, open, we, we tried our best to decrease the likelihood that we were going to uh, feel as though we were infringing on anybody's uh, territory. And that if we can at least get this pilot program completed, then we would have data and information and um, feedback from our early participants to kind of speak on its own behalf and rather than us feel the need to convince what we can show you know, we had one participant whose cholesterol dropped I believe 33 points from her last physical to uh, the physical that she received uh, right at the end of this program and so that if we do want to do a cardiac focused one and there's concern about whether it's going to be beneficial beyond the scientific evidence that's already published about plant-based diets and cardiac health, we can say, well, this is a drop we saw in blood pressure, and then this is a drop we saw in cholesterol, and this is a drop we saw in blood sugar, so that we can try to show that there's no nothing to be concerned about, that there's, there's published information, and then there's in-house information that we can use. So, mm. like, keeping it broad, we're, we're just trying to see what we saw and what would come forward from it and we are very happy with uh, not only the biomarker results but our participants were a they were a great bunch they were enthusiastic uh, 
everybody really took to it strongly, and we had some who really dove in and have really experienced some profound changes in their health. So, so were, were you? You talk about not stepping on the toes of other departments or. or uh practice areas of the hospital, were you concerned about stepping on toes by just teaching about plant-based nutrition, that this is, this is not, when, when someone goes to, the, to their doctor or to a hospital with a cardiac issue, they're rarely told about food. They're told about treatment options, drugs and, and procedures. Exactly. And that's kind of the ironic thing about it is we were not going to be kind of contradictory really to anybody's nutrition message as uh, there really is no nutrition message. Uh, the one kind of community, I suppose, or the department area that was most concerned was uh, diabetes management, because here we are telling everybody to eat, you know, no restriction on carbohydrates, don't worry about it, eat whole plant foods, um, don't, don't start carb counting or anything like that. And we got a lot of uh, fear and pushback from them uh, when we first put our program together, because they are probably one of the few departments within most hospitals that actually do have a nutrition message and you know what we were saying even though again the evidence is fully supportive of it but based on sort of the party line if you will you know very contrary to the protein unrestricted carbohydrate restricted um, American Diabetic Association style diet mm-hmm gotcha and right. no matter how much uh, uh, studies we showed them or how much information from Neil Barnard or other people, John McDougall, doing studies on showing that these carbohydrate unrestricted, you know, plant-based diets are excellent for blood sugar management. Um, it, it just was, the message was not being heard by some. And so that's another reason why we kind of abandoned the initial idea to have a disease state or, or a health state focused uh, program and just keep this open to anybody. Gotcha. Uh, so, how did you for this group of eleven? Wh- what did what did you do? Can you take kind of take us through maybe the first two or three sessions of of uh, you know? There's all you have a, a bunch of competing tasks to some extent. Do you want to teach them this information that maybe they haven't heard before, or maybe contradicts what they've heard before? You you want to keep them entertained? You want to empower them to make changes? How do you uh, balance and? have time for all that? Sure. So uh, each class was about an hour and a half. We met directly after the end of the day shift, so right at 5 p.m. And we would spend the first 30 to 45 minutes or so of that 90-minute period uh, having kind of a community check-in. So for the first week, you know, a lot of it was just spent introducing the concept of what a plant-based diet is. And we were very purposeful about using the term plant-based we didn't say this was a vegetarian diet. We didn't say it was a vegan diet. Because, uh, again, we didn't want people to feel at any point like, oh, this isn't for me. So we were very upfront in the beginning of saying, you know, do this to whatever degree you feel you're going to be able to. So we never told them you can't eat this or that you must eat that or, again, kind of get into that um, dietetic list of good food, bad food that often shuts people down, or it just kind of misses the overall message of a good overall lifestyle. And so for those first probably two sessions, um, it was spending nearly the whole hour and a half just sharing, yes, some information. We would share uh, data and, and science about kind of the major chronic illnesses that people are most likely to be dealing with obesity, heart disease, diabetes, um, even touched upon cancer a little bit and the role between that and plant-based nutrition. And then from every week there and out, uh, it was spending, again, a good half an hour, 45 minutes, asking people to share experiences from the week. So what did you cook? Did you like it? Did you not like it? Did you try a restaurant? Did they have... These options? If so, what were they? What did you think of them? Um, somebody mentioned, oh, I watched Forks Over Knives. Really? Explain that document. What is that movie? Explain it to everybody else here. Where did you find it? What did you think about it? So it was a way for them all to share and connect their actual experiences. And then the remaining 30 to 45 minutes or so, we would spend on a topic. 
And we kept our topics very simple because, again, we weren't trying to feel as though anybody needed to um, be overburdened with information or to lose that very human edge. And so we would talk about something as simple as how do you take food you already know how to cook, recipes you already know how to make, and just slowly bring them towards a more plant-based edge. So rather than say you need to buy a bunch of new cookbooks and learn a whole new cuisine of cooking and buy all these exotic ingredients you've never heard of before, how do you take that same chili recipe? How do you take that same salad, that same dessert, and just slowly start to bring in plant-based substitutions or to shift the emphasis from a lot of ground meat and little beans to a lot of beans and a small amount of ground meat. If you even feel like using it at all, um, we would do very simple talks on food label reading, um, very simple talks on how do you go to any grocery store and find healthy food, trying to get people away from the idea that they have to go to an expensive health food store to eat healthfully. Um, throughout the 12 weeks, we had, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly, five cooking classes, and so showed them very simple things like quick snacks, quick desserts, quick meals, um, easy dressings or sauces or condiments that you can use to heighten the flavor of very simple, easy-to-prepare food, and always give them the opportunity throughout to keep talking, asking questions, sharing things. Um, some of them would bring in food they made to share with people or bringing copies of recipes that they cooked at home. And if nothing else, for an hour and a half, there was a tremendous amount of laughter and just chit chat and very down-to-earth communal conversation. Um, we made sure very purposely to never have it kind of set up of, well, I'm the, the healthcare practitioner and you've got to listen to what I say, or I'm up here and you're down here. It's very, we're all in this together. Everybody's working towards the same ultimate goal. Um, how do we do so in a way that is as fun as possible? And without needing to tell anybody you must give up this food or that food, by week four, week five, you know, uh, participants would come in and say, I didn't want the chicken. I didn't want the cheese. Or, Have you ever heard of nutritional yeast? I used it instead. Or I found this uh, amazing recipe for General Tso's chickpeas, and it tastes better than General Tso's chicken. And on their own, without us trying to um, hard test them into abstaining from any particular foods, they just gradually did so on their own. Hmm. So, uh, you sent me some information about the outcomes. So I guess this yeah. is, this is, uh, so tell me, first of all, what, what did you decide you were going to measure and when? So we, uh, wanted to look at the types of, of biometrics that we thought our participants would care about the most. So the things that we thought uh, they would have the most personal interest in weight, waist circumference, uh, blood sugar, because we knew some of them were coming in with either pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes already, uh, and blood pressure. So things that most would be caring about, you know, are there changes to their waist, are there changes to their weight and BMI, um, rather than looking at other markers, other factors that they may not, again, have as much of an emotional connection to. And we had them check their results uh, before the program, about halfway through the program, and then at the uh, end of the program to kind of give them a long-term way to view how is your body reacting to these dietary changes you're making, however uh, simple those changes may be or however grand those changes may be. Mm -hmm. So what did, what did you discover? And so we found um, one of the things that excited us the most is every single participant, even the ones who maybe necessarily weren't you know, 100% in in terms of really cutting out a lot of uh, animal products or, or refined oils, the other thing, everybody had a, a decrease in their waist circumference. Um, we saw excellent decreases in blood sugar. I mean, uh, we had one participant uh, who was sharing with us that her doctor feels that she'll be able to get off of her nighttime injection of Levomir uh, most likely by January if things continue to move 
the way that they are um, with how much her, her A1C and her fasting blood sugar has dropped. So we saw great drops in blood sugar. We didn't test for cholesterol. Um, we would like maybe in future ones to be able to, but uh, the cholesterol testing would have cost more, and we didn't want to increase the cost to our participants for this first round. But we did have one participant share that her cholesterol dropped about 33 points, and um, you know it had been the lowest it had been in quite some time. Um, one of the things that was very exciting was the spouses, the two significant others who came um, with with their their um, either wives or girlfriends who worked for the hospital. They were sort of just along for the ride. They were there to support, and they had some of the best changes in terms of you know a lot of weight loss, uh, shrinking in waist uh, circumference, uh, really good overall changes. Hmm. How how about and the, the thing, how about the spouses of the spouses the people who were in the program did they did they seem to do better with that uh, support? Yeah, those who who had either a, a husband or a boyfriend or, or a spouse that that came with um, really flourished, and not to say that the other participants didn't, but there was a definite uh, uniqueness to their experience in that. They, they, they both had a side of the story to share, and they both had very unique experiences to share um, in terms of it's not just saying, well, I'm doing this and this is what's happening at home, but more of the home is participating. And um, one group, uh, one couple, uh, their, uh, I believe, daughter is already, I think, uh, vegetarian or vegan, already eating a plant-based diet. And so then their daughter was very excited about what they were doing. And they had even more family support to kind of keep them going because a larger uh, circle was starting to develop within their family of members who were eating a plant-based diet. And I think it kept them strong. So rather than uh, employee A goes home and husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend not really on board where now they're making two dinners or it's just a bit more of a chore – Everybody's on board, everybody's eating the same meal, and it takes away that great likelihood of maybe some tension or frustration or some of those dinner battles at home that often prevent people from eating more healthfully. Mm-hmm. So as I, as I look at the data, uh, it looks like people – remind me how long the program was. Was it 12 weeks? Uh, 12 weeks, yeah. Okay. So they lost uh, an average of nine and a quarter pounds each. So it's about three quarters of a pound a week. Um, mm-hmm. Waist circumference decreased. Uh, I'm just doing the my Excel on the fly. Looks like uh, by two, <laughs> two, two and a half inches average, or six six percent. Uh, fasting glucose looks like it dropped an average of of nine points. Um, blood pressure mo- almost across the board dropped how did how mm-hmm. did people you know so you and i can look at this and be very happy about the results how did the participants themselves experience both sort of individually their results and as a group what's what's the what's the story they tell about their experience and what what it did for them well i would say overall the the common factor with a lot of a uh, happy surprise and I think not so much that they were surprised that this type of dietary um, message would, would help them be healthy, but that they were experiencing it. Um, I, I, one thing that has come up a lot uh, whenever I've done outpatient nutrition counseling or consultations of that is the common theme that I see most people bringing up uh, in that kind of setting is if I wanted this more, I would have been successful already, or if I wasn't so lazy, or we always kind of had this personal blame uh, going on about, like, I just must not be able to do this, or I must not be strong enough, or whatever it is that it might be. And not that anybody within this particular group expressed those sentiments to me, but just by and large, I'm sure more than a few have felt that at some point in their past, because that is something that just about every person I've ever counseled has has brought up in some way, shape, or form. So Mm. that they individually 
were able to see, oh my goodness, look at this drop in my in my dress size, in my waist circumference, in my blood pressure, my doctor's telling me I can get off of some of my meds. That makes it very real, and it, I think, shatters any possible pre-belief they may have had about their ability to be successful. And a message that I tried to get across very strongly to them and to anybody who has ever brought that belief up is, the issue is not that you're lazy. You're not lazy. It's not that you don't want to lose weight or lower your blood sugar. Of course you do. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. The problem is the methods or the approach that's been given to you is inherently uh, false, is inherently not going to be successful. So you're given a broken machine and then think it's something you did wrong. And so I think for them to be able to have this kind of result, and again, we never asked anybody to go vegan. We never asked anybody that you must abstain from these foods. We simply said, crowd out your plate, your meals with as much of these plant foods as possible. Here's some of the reason why we're saying it, that you do what's going to work for you. And then without having to turn their world upside down, they started to get these kinds of results. I think that is a stronger motivating factor to continue to do what they're doing and then hopefully adopt more and more of a percentage of their diet to be solely plant-based than anybody sharing, you know, epidemiological information or other kind of, of data, which to fellow scientists and healthcare practitioners might be interesting, but to the consumer, to the patient, to the layperson, they want something that they feel a connection to. And these results, while, you know, some of them had more dramatic than others, even a slight reduction in anything, I think, is a powerful message to show, like, see, you did it. You figured this out on your own, and you did it. Uh, my colleague Tracy and I, who, who helped me put this together, one thing we kept saying over and over is, you know, you're not doing this because we created a plant-based meal delivery program. You, we didn't do this because you're cooking the recipes we gave you to cook. You have each, all 11 of you have individually figured out for your life, for your preferences, for where you are on your stage of change right now, what version of this can you do? And they did it. And it's incredibly encouraging uh, for us, and I think it was encouraging for them that they, on their own terms, figured out how they could do this over the course of this of this time and be able to get those kind of introductory uh, results to be able to see that this was proof that they did it and that they were able to do it their way. Right, and, and I'm imagining that this is having ramifications far beyond the the pantry the kitchen and the table that when when for the first time someone feels like wow i can do this whatever the this is that that has to uh, you know cross over to other things that maybe they thought gee i could i could never maintain an exercise program but but look at me maybe i'm stronger and better and less lazy than i thought Exactly. I 100% agree. And I feel like it just, it, for me, it keeps bringing up that concept of it's all about empowerment. You know, that if, if you start to feel empowered or have a great deal of self-efficacy in one area of your life, that's going to ripple out into every area of your life. Um, and so we're really excited to see how they continue to do. Now that the program is over, we're going to continue to have a monthly um, check-in with them so that to their own discretion, they can come to every single month. They don't have to. Uh, they're free to anybody who's gone through it, so it's not additional financial cost to them. That for an hour each month, not including email follow-up, they still have a place to come to. They still have a group uh, to feel connected to and to continue to share their experiences, their successes, their, their troubles. And then starting March of 2016, we're going to have our next round of this program, and so they're going to be kind of our ambassadors to the new group of people coming through, which we're hoping will not only be of a great benefit to our new employee population, and we're actually going to open it up to the community uh, come March as well, that not only will they be able to be a benefit to our new participants, but now it puts them in a position of you're the authority, you're the ambassador for this, you've gone through it, and you've had months of experience to share. Um, to continue to allow them to feel like they're part of something greater 
than themselves, that they're part of a larger community and that they have a, uh, a leadership role within it. They have, they have a position of, of, of importance within that to hopefully continue to drive those motivational factors within them. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a, a great deal of sense. Everything we know about human nature is if people, when, when, oh, the, yes. the more people commit to something, the more committed they are to it. Yes, I mean, it, it's very straightforward. <laughs> it's nothing too earth shattering. Um, but few health and wellness programs do it. It's just X amount of weeks, you get some info, and then it's done. Um, where as opposed to how does anybody stay successful with anything, they've got community support, they've got, uh, even if it's a person who can't be there physically, but you've got these great forums and, and things online now where you can still feel a part of a greater community if you don't have one in your physical geography, uh, to still feel like I'm more part of a greater movement and to try to bring that movement more and more to critical mass. Right. So did any before we go, I just want to ask about money. Did anyone um, think about whether this was going to save the hospital system money, whether it was going to lower people's insurance rates, or um, is or is, is that if not, is that something that you're going to look at in the future? And the reason I ask is that there's you know billions and billions of dollars spent on these sorts of programs, right, on employee wellness programs, and. Almost every single dollar that we know of is is utterly wasted in you know the humanas and all the all the big players um, oh, yeah. and it seems logical that your approach would save people money if they're getting off their diabetes meds and and reducing their risk of of various events i'm wondering if if anyone's going looking at that now or thinking about adding it to your evaluation We'll definitely be looking at it. So that is definitely part of the reason why um, this program came into being was not just to continue to um, increase the the effectiveness of our employee wellness programs, but also to look at, well, how are things like arthritis medications, diabetic medications, um, all these types of, of care-related costs that are now being billed to the hospital through the hospital's insurance how can this be affected? Um, and we know through through studies that have been done that these more long-term, truly interventional studies save money. Um, I believe it was Neil Barnard did a program through Geico, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, bringing plant-based nutrition in and looking at to see, well, how did it affect things like productivity? Um, were there less uh, sick days, were there less days where employees felt unproductive to not just look at health for the sake of health, but to look at you know, how does this affect the bottom line of a company's budget when it comes to employee health care costs. So um, it'll be interesting to see in the long term um, following employees of ours and their spouses who have gone through the program and that use the hospital's uh, insurance for their health care, do their costs to the hospital go down, less hospital visits, um, less medication charges, all these things. So that is definitely something that uh, is currently being and will continue to be looked at to see from across the spectrum beyond just kind of the humanitarian or the moral aspect of helping your uh, employee population to be healthy, but does this make a happier employee population, a, a more productive employee population, and a less expensive employee population if they're just, by and large, healthier and feeling better? Right. And especially if they're a hospital population, does this idea virus spreading around eventually change the way medicine is practiced in the community as well? And that would be the hope is that you know this will kind of be a template that can be Followed, and that especially, especially if we're we're in a healthcare setting, and thought is that well, that setting, that that hospital or clinic or organization should be taking health, you know, more seriously than anybody, um, if it's truly a healthcare organization. And so I think this shift from only looking at health in the clinical sense to a more population health, public health, community health, wellness focused is really hopefully where we're going to continue to see. Uh, medicine and the whole paradigm we have about healthcare continue to evolve and grow and shift over time because it's 
It has to. It's an, it's unsustainable to not do so. Right. And uh, yeah, I think you know you're you're on the vanguard, and you're um, you're part of a growing number of people who are who are staking out small you know small plots of garden and trying to grow things in a different way. Um, so, oh, yeah. <laughs> so that when 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 the when the big when the big system collapses, we'll have we'll have models uh, upon which to rebuild. So, uh, Anthony Disson, th- thanks so thanks so much for for taking the time and sharing this this inspiring and insightful story. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, we'll have to we'll have to follow up in the spring and find out how everybody's doing. Oh, I would be happy to anytime. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time and be well. You as well. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're a new listener, you can find archived shows at plantyourself.com or on iTunes. Just search for the Plant Yourself podcast. Speaking of iTunes, if you'd like to send us a little love, you can leave a review and some stars to help other people find out about the show. And speaking of love, if you'd like to help support the podcast, you can go to plantyourself.com and on the right side, there's a space to make a donation, one time or recurring. You could think of it as like, uh, this is your public radio drive, quite short, but uh, every little bit helps. I'm excited to announce that I'm going to be venturing into a new medium, uh, live streaming internet television. My first show, will be on Monday, December 7th at 2.30 in the afternoon Eastern Time. And the show, I'm sure, will evolve over time, but I am envisioning it as an interview show, so a little bit of podcast-like interviews with people, but also since it's going to be live, there will be a call-in component. Sometimes I'll have guests, and you can ask questions of the guests, and sometimes it'll be just me, and you can ask questions of me. Um, If you want to find out more about that, You can follow me on Facebook at Plant Yourself, facebook.com slash plantyourself, or go to plantyourself.com and sign up for the newsletter. And I'll be sending out all the information on how you can listen in, how you can call in. And I would love to have a lot of support as I start out because the people who are already listening to this channel uh, before I come on may not know much about plant-based nutrition, about wellness, so it'd be great to have a whole community there to welcome them. In garden news, last night we welcomed a whole new cohort of rescue chickens. We have nine uh, new old ladies at the No Soup For You sanctuary in our backyard. They are quite skittish, and the seven that we already have uh, freaked out a little bit, so we're, uh, we're trying to keep the peace there, but uh, we hope they will all um, settle in and, and convalesce and make friends. I have to say, I can sympathize with those chickens, both the, uh, the old ones and the new ones. As I build my own uh, healthcare consulting practice, I have to go do things outside of my comfort zone. And sometimes I do admit I, I ruffle some feathers. So I wish for you that wherever you find yourself this week, however unfamiliar, however uncomfortable, that you ground and breathe. And as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>